Welcome to Experts Only Podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more at cleancapital.com. I'm your host, John Powers. Each week, we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance with leaders across the industry. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back to Experts Only Podcast. This is John Powers, your host. This summer, we saw records soar and break around the globe, not just here in the US, including in China. And today we have a really interesting guest, David Sandalo, who's from Columbia's Center on Global Energy Policy. And he just published a guide on Chinese climate policy this summer. I worked closely with David in the government. He served as the Under Secretary of Energy at DOE, but now is a fellow at Columbia uh, and working sort of across the uh, university, but also spending a lot of time teaching in China as well. The 2019 Guide to Chinese Policies, it's an updated report on China's climate change policies. The report covers information on Chinese emissions, the impact of climate change in China, the history of China's climate policy and its policies response uh, today. It was first published in 2018. This is an updated version. And I think you'll see in the conversation today, there's a lot happening uh, overseas and a lot of opportunity uh, if you can figure out the market. So we look forward to the conversation and uh, we'll get started. David, thank you so much for joining us on Experts Only Podcast. Thanks for having me, John. You've had a really illustrious career uh, in government, uh, working in uh, academia, focus on a variety of really critical sort of global issues. And I want to get into those and get into what's happening in, uh, in, in China and you know, talk about the report. But first of all, how did you even get interested in, in China? You know, I've been interested in China since I was a kid. And when I was young, when I was in high school and, and college, uh, it was impossible for Americans to travel to China. Just, just to date myself, right. you know, back in that era, two countries did not have diplomatic relations, literally couldn't go there. And then in the late 70s, we uh, established diplomatic relations with China, the United, United States, uh, and um, China started ex- exchanging people in a variety of different walks of life. And I started looking around for a way to get to China uh, and looking for an exchange program that I could join. And it, it, the internet didn't exist back then. Right. Um, but I, l- I looked around and, and I ended up with a, I was in law school at the time and I found a program, um, run by Columbia law school and, uh, Columbia, um, uh, sent a group of students, um, over to Shanghai for the summer of, in the summer of 1981. Uh, and it was just an extraordinary experience. Uh, it was, it was a very different Shanghai than the one that people visit today that that summer there was exactly one international telephone line in the entire city of oh Shanghai God. that we could call it. it was just remarkably different um yeah but it was uh it was fascinating and i've been interested in china ever and since. this is basically less than a decade after kissinger had gone over and really started to open it. yeah that's right the 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 nixon kissinger diplomacy happened in the early 1970s it was 1978 when jimmy carter and deng xiaoping uh normalized relations between the two countries and so then i as I worked on energy and environment, which was my principal career interest, I kept on looking for ways to engage with China. And, and in the 1990s, I was had the privilege of working on the White House staff and the National Security Council staff and um, was able to travel with President Clinton uh, to China in 1998 and help organize an environmental event that he did as part of his trip to China and worked on issues around climate change in China during that period as well. And let's see, then just carrying it forward, I uh, 
I spent a big part of the decade after that at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C., and wrote some reports and monographs on the United States and China and climate change and how we might work together. And then I had the honor of going into the Obama administration and trying to implement some of the ideas that I had been recommending. And I was um, in in the Obama administration, I was um, at the U.S. Department of Energy in several different, a couple different jobs. And, but my main focus during those years was on China. And I uh, traveled 14 times, I guess, in four and a half years to China, uh, working both on disagreements in the relationships and the agreements in the relationship. And there were, there were both. And we built up a strong architecture of cooperative relationship, uh, cooperative programs on clean energy and, and uh, uh, climate change, and, and also managed some pretty serious disagreements during that period as well. How much of that work was focused on the energy side versus sort of the climate preparedness you know, work? Uh, pretty intertwined. I mean, yeah. I, I was a climate negotiator in the 1990s, very deeply involved with the climate negotiations. You know, the, the 25th Conference of Parties of the Climate Change Negotiations are coming up in Santiago, Chile this fall. I, I, I would say U.S. I was a White House official at the, at the first Conference of Parties to the Climate Change uh, Convention, which was held in Berlin in 1995. So I've been doing these climate change negotiations for a long time and was uh, involved from my energy department perch some during the first Obama term. And we were working with with China both on climate negotiations, but uh, more from the the energy department, more directly on, on energy cooperation. So in parallel, you know, you've got this China interest that's, that's, that's blossoming and has really run a track in your career. What, what interests you in climate and energy? I came at, I, I started as a, uh, as an environmental lawyer. I worked, um, I, I'd always been interested in the outdoors. Um, I was, uh, uh, early in my career, I spent time at the uh, Environmental Protection Agency as a Clean Air Act and a Clean Water Act lawyer. Oh. Uh, and, uh, and then uh, during the Clinton administration, got detailed over to the White House and, uh, and then never went back. Then uh, was hired over at the White House and uh, have been doing, doing policy work ever since. And, and at the White House, I had the privilege of spending a lot of time with Vice President Gore and with, with President Clinton working on climate change issues. And I'd say that's what really sparked my attention and fo- focused me on, on the importance of energy issues. And yeah. then from there, got into energy issues. I mean, so having been tackling this for you know over twenty five years, we're sort of you know we're, we're coming to the tail end of a summer that had you know not one but two presidential forums on climate. You know, we had these worldwide strikes led by a, a, an amazing teenager coming out of Sweden. Uh, incredible sort of climate discussions that happened last week in New York. I've been talking a little bit on the, the, this show about how I think we're living in a bit of a climate moment that's. A little bit unique, but you've been working at this for 25 years, sort of building the momentum. How do you sort of gauge where we are today to, you know, where things have sort of come in the last uh, two decades? No, John, I think you're you're exactly right. There's there's good news and bad news. Uh, the good news is that the attention has never been greater. I mean, just in the past you yeah. know, couple of weeks, we've seen uh, demonstrations all around the globe, unprecedented um, level of attention um, uh, in the media. Um, Certainly in the U.S. political process, there has never been more attention than there has in the past year. I mean, listeners to this podcast are probably familiar with the fact that there were no questions asked about climate change right. in the 2016 presidential election debates. And, and now it's really become one of the major uh, topics of attention, certainly in the Democratic primary dialogue. So that's the good news. 
the bad news is that uh, the the action is not catching up; it's not yet caught up with the attention, and we need right. not just attention but action. And and you know, the UN Climate Summit, which was just um, uh, this mo- last month, um, the commitments from national governments were very disappointing, and we are way way off track in address solving this problem. Uh, uh, on on the current path, we're going to be in very serious trouble as a planet um, as a result of all these heat-trapping gases that we're pouring into the atmosphere. Yeah, it's a fascinating and challenging time. And so I think one of the interesting uh, trends here in the United States is, is the detractors often say that, you know, we don't have to act uh, until India or China acts. They use them actually quite often. But I think what your report shows is that China is actually acting. So, you know, how do you empower folks here uh, at home to push back on those type of the tractors, like what are some of the really interesting, and we'll talk more about the findings here in a second, but you know, what are, is there any, any, any interesting stories that you grab from your research that can help people sort of combat the, uh, the, the tractors here at home? Well, l- let me just start with the basic fact, just for any listeners who um, may not know it. I mean, that the China leads the world in, in emissions of heat trapping gases last year more than in the U.S. and Europe combined. So there is no solution to climate change without China playing a very important role in that point. Now, on your question, the Chinese government is taking some very serious steps um, that are addressing climate change, and I talk about those in my report. And I'll let me just list them in a minute. At the same time, the Chinese government has policies that are not helpful when it comes to fighting climate change. Um, so it's not surprising the biggest country in the world um, would have a complicated and multifaceted set of policies. But um, anybody who says China's doing nothing uh, is getting it exactly wrong. The Chinese government is doing a lot to fight climate change. And, and, and one critical distinction between the U.S., between Chinese government and the U.S. government in this regard, that there are not, uh, there are no known climate deniers in the Chinese government. Um, the, the, uh, and certainly none with any observable influence on policy. In fact, in, in the 2016 period, I, I had a number of conversations um, in China with people who at some level, I could tell they were just deeply skeptical when that, that, that the United States was going to be run by somebody who didn't believe in the science of climate change, that didn't compute for them, because there, there are literally tens of millions of Chinese who are looking for opportunities to come study in science and technology issues in U.S. universities, the the respect for U.S. science and technology runs so deep in China. The notion that we might be run by somebody who didn't believe, believe in science, just it, it didn't quite compute. Now I think people understand that, in fact, that's the case. Right. Um, but uh, so, so... So, so let me no ask you a question. Is a lot of the, and we'll talk more about what they're actually doing, but is a lot of it driven by just that core belief in the science or is there a cultural movement happening there because of some of the environmental impacts of their growth? You know, what, what, how does yeah. it all sort of come together? No, that, um, so yeah, I think there, there is a basic respect for science and scientists, which is, in, in my experience runs, runs very high, uh, in China. I, I, um, I witnessed this. I worked during the Obama administration for secretary Stephen Chu of the energy department who was a Nobel prize winner in physics. And I got to see the respect that really extraordinary respect that he received in China for that. Now, of course, respected everywhere for that, but, uh, but I think there's a particular quality of um, respect for, for science and technology and leaders in science and technology in China. At the same time, as, as you were just suggesting, uh, air pollution problems are extremely vivid in China. China has um, although just horribly polluted air in some cities uh, in many cities, 
Um, and it's a major political issue in China, uh, in some ways similar to what it was in the United States in the 1960s and 1970s. Um, you know, back, I, I actually talked to somebody recently who, um, older than me, he, uh, he, he uh, is retired, but he was telling me that when he used to go to work on Wall Street um, uh, in, in his 20s, he would bring two white shirts with him because the air was so polluted um, that his white really? shirt, his white collars would get dirty. That type of thing. So, you know, I think it's, it's an extraordinary success story in the United States, how we've cleaned the air in our cities. And uh, I think the Chinese government is trying to replicate that success. It's going to take them a while, but they uh, have a number of policies in place to do that, including in particular phasing out the coal, which heats much of Northern China and, uh, and replacing it with natural gas and with um, renewables in the power sector. Uh, and, and so this is a big issue in China and it's getting a lot of attention. And, and this has very positive impacts on um, the fight against climate change as well. And, and if you read Chinese material about climate change, they identify the transition away from coal as, as um, a key part of that. So I think there's a, a lack of understanding here in the U.S. about just Chinese infrastructure as a whole, where we're living on a grid that's been around for, for decades. You know, China is now sort of on the, sort of the tail end of, uh, you know, 20 plus years of incredible growth, of course, but they didn't have a, 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 even a national grid, right? They had a, a series of grids that patched together. And it's actually provided them an opportunity with distributed generation um, and to sort of grow, but also challenges, right? And how they move the power across the country. Are you seeing the demand for renewables driven there more by uh, just the need for electricity? Or is it you know, government mandates that are pushing these things forward or, you know, like here in the U.S. where we have the Walmarts and Amazons and others really clamoring for it? I think policy has been the major driver and in China and the Chinese government has had very strong incentives for the deployment of renewable power over the course of the past uh, decade. Um, You know, last year, once again, China led the world in deployment of solar power. 45% of the panels deployed globally in the world were in China. China led the world again. Forty-five percent of the forty-five percent of the solar panels in the wow. world were in China last year. Yeah, and and uh, uh, and by the way, more than half of the electric vehicles sold in the world last year were right. in China. So uh, the commitment is strong now. The Chinese government is in the process of changing its renewable energy policy to policies. They've had pretty generous feed-in tariffs, and they are switching over to an auction system. Hmm. Um, and one of the most interesting developments is that this in this auction system, if uh, solar power can come in lower than the benchmark price for coal, it gets land allocations and other types of benefits. Um, and uh, in, in Western China, in, in just the past year, for the first time, we're seeing bids for solar auctions coming in at less than the benchmark price for coal. That's amazing. So, so do you see that governance system they have sort of, you know, we haven't really talked about this yet, but we did offline, you know, for, for folks that aren't aware, the sort of central government designs these five-year plans and has a, a obviously a pretty centrally managed way of approaching things like the climate and energy or any really policy, which is uh, obviously in our day and age in the U.S., hard to imagine a federal energy policy coming out right now. How, you know, how, that has, has that strengthened the execution, but has it hurt sort of innovation or is it, are we sort of misreading that 
So I think so. the Chinese system has both strengths and weaknesses when it comes to fighting climate change. And I think its biggest strength is the one you just pointed to, which is the planning process, which right. is so different than anything we do here in the United States. Um, the Chinese government is on its 13th five-year plan right now. Uh, it's preparing for its 14th five-year plan. And these these plans very much shape government policies. They're, they don't always hit every five-year plan target, but but everybody in the bureaucracy um, is charged with trying to hit those targets. And so they have very significant impacts on what the Chinese government does. And so, uh, and then in addition to these five-year plans, they have these incredibly long-term goals. The Chinese government has a 2049 goal of becoming a prosperous middle-class society by 2049. And it's, it shapes policymaking, you know, and, and it, it affects the political dialogue. You know, here in the United States, when, a, when we pass a one-year appropriations bill, it makes headlines and everybody right. celebrates, right? <laughs> right? So, I mean, it's a real difference. And we just don't have anything like that. And, and when you're talking about an energy transition, which is what we need to fight climate change, um, that type of planning, I think, uh, is very helpful um, for uh, Chinese government. Now, uh, there are some real issues in the Chinese system that, that cause problems. One of them is their, their implementation culture is not nearly as strong as ours is. In, in, um, in the United States, once we pass a law, we have pretty good mechanisms for enforcing it. In China, there tend to be more ways for people to avoid compliance. Um, oh, interesting. And so that can, that can be a problem. Um, corruption has been a problem. Their statistical systems are not as good as ours. So there's some strengths and weaknesses. I elaborate on this in the book, but there's some strengths and yeah. weaknesses in, in the Chinese system uh, when it comes to fighting climate change. So as you look at what the, the Chinese are doing, you know, there's obviously the current administration, there's a clear trend of demonizing, uh, demonizing China, you know, the push on tariffs and all the risks and challenges that that we face, uh, sort of doing work with them. Do you do you see like what? How's their response been to that message? Obviously, uh, not from a geopolitical perspective, but from like some of climate and energy's perspective. One and then two, you know, is there still a lot of opportunity to collaborate, or is, is that starting to get shut down by the broader narrative? So the the trade wars had a negative impact on the fight against climate change. I mean, actually, not just in China, but in the United States. I mean, the right. the, the, the first. Uh, tariffs that were imposed were actually on solar panels. Um, I guess in washing machines at the same time, um, but but you know that that you know, tax on Americans buying solar panels that President Trump imposed has uh, hurt the solar industry here in China. I think the the leaders have focused far more on economic stability and energy security as a result of the trade war, and in some ways that aligns with climate change goals. Well, you know, one way, for example, is there's been a very strong push on um, electric vehicles. And part of that, a big part of that, not the only part, but a big part of that is the energy security aspect of being concerned about their dependence on oil imports. Um, right. And it's also good from a climate change standpoint. But, but I think climate change has received less priority um, as a result of the focus on, on some other issues. Um, uh, in, in the past year or so, uh, I, I think there are there remain very strong opportunities for cooperation for sure. I mean, th- this is a period of really consider enormous tension between the U.S. and China uh, politically, and and I think that's um, going to shape the relationship for for years to come. But but this is an area, the kind of clean energy and environment, that has been a good t- area for cooperation in the past, and it's got 
tremendous opportunities to to do that in the future. Um, and in fact, not just in the future, it's it's happening right now. It's happening mainly at the subnational level right now. The state of California and some other states, state of Washington, um, have some very strong bilateral cooperation programs right now. So there's a fair amount of activity going on at that level between the U.S. and China. You know, as you point out in the book, right, 43% of the world's new renewable energy capacity is coming online in China. So if you're here in the U.S. and looking at that as an opportunity, as, an, as a market that maybe you should, you know, you or your company should enter into, what advice would you give to those entrepreneurs or even, you know, the more mature sort of uh, investors that are looking that maybe maybe not have entered that market before? Because it's can be obviously clearly pretty challenging, right? Yeah, I would I would say um, spend time with professionals who are doing business in China who understand the the ins and outs of doing that. Um, the Chinese market's very challenging. There there are opportunities there, but there are um, enor- there are risks. Um, uh, market access can be a challenge. Um, so, uh, but 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 there are you know there's an American you know, Chamber of Commerce and and other the uh, big community of people who know how to navigate China, and I'd make sure to, that you're you're working closely with those people. I don't think we've had a chance to say something important about China, which I just wanted before we sign off. Yeah. I want to be sure. We, you know, I think I think it's important to say the Chinese government is doing a lot of good things when it comes to climate change. I don't want anybody to walk away with rose-colored glasses about this. At the same time, the Chinese government is is pursuing some policies that are not good with respect to climate change. And that includes, in particular, continuing building of coal plants both within China and then supporting that abroad in other right. countries. And so, you know, that's it's a, it's a very important issue for, for the globe as a whole. And, and, uh, and, and unless, unless that coal build slows down, it's going to be much harder to uh, hit any type of global climate targets. So I do want to talk about the Columbia Center on on Global Energy Policy for a second. Where you know you sat as you you put together put together the book. What what is the role of the the center and you know what's it doing at Columbia? So our center is a policy research and uh, center w- within the School of International Public Affairs at Columbia University. We're only um, just a little over six years old, going yeah. seven years old, and um, have, have grown enormously doing research across a, a wide range of energy topics. And and our, our goal is to provide information that's useful to policymakers and, uh, and, and, and the public and private sector more broadly as well. Um, and so this book that I've just done on a guide to Chinese climate policy is part of that. And, you know, one example of that. And we spent a lot of time figuring out how to make our research accessible. Uh, and, and so this guide to Chinese climate policy, you, you, can, you can access it three ways, actually. You can go to our website and get the entire content, which is, which is there. You can download it for free, or you can buy it on Amazon. Um, go to Amazon, and uh, uh, it will arrive at your door several days later. Um, so we're we're uh, we're trying to make this um, useful to anybody who's interested in this product, and 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 that's the type of thing we're doing at the Center on Global Energy Policy is is um, looking for ways that are um, useful for policymakers. And you can find that at energypolicy.columbia.edu. And one of the things I love that you guys are doing there, uh, and going back to what you just mentioned, is that you are often seeing uh, the the experts from the center uh, in the in the media, right? Whether it be in op-eds or being quoted in uh, in articles, and it's really important to have that level of expertise in the dialogue that we're facing today, both here in the U.S. and, of course, what you're doing abroad. 
we try to make a contribution indeed. Yeah, excellent. So one one last question. We're you know we're facing some ma- major elections here in the U.S. You know, um, hopefully we'll for for climate sake and for many other sakes of so maybe a change in the the leadership of the White House here um, in 2020. You know, is is the relationship uh, repairable after sort of the 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 fights we've been having? Can we get back on the same page to start working together on things like climate and energy, or is it going to take another entire administration before we're there? I think that the U.S. and China can absolutely um, resume working together on this issue, and I, I I hope for the world's sake that'll happen. We're the world's two largest emitters, and yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, our, our the bilateral agreement um, between the U.S. and China, I think, provided a foundation for the Paris Agreement. Uh, so uh, now it's it's not going to be easy. Um, there's no, no question about it. Um, one thing I found going back and forth between China and the United States is this enormous sus- mutual suspicion. In both countries have um, you know a lot of suspicion of the other. But I, I think that the, this is an issue set where we actually have common interests, where we both need to work each other and other countries in order to uh, avoid some really dangerous impacts. And so I, I think it's an area where we can, where we can absolutely work together. And I, I, I predict that we will. That's good to hear. So David, thank you so much for joining us. John, it's a delight. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. And you can get the guide to Chinese climate policy uh, at Columbia Center on global energy policy uh, at energypolicy.columbia.edu. We'll also be hosting it at our website. Uh, cleancapital.com. You can get more experts-only podcast uh, episodes there as well. And please, as always, please send notes on folks we should be talking to or interviews we should be having. We appreciate everyone listening. I want to send a special thanks to our producers, Carly Batten and Nicole Waddington for their hard work uh, and research ahead of these uh, episodes. And uh, as always, I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks for listening in today's conversation. Find more episodes on cleancapital.com, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. We look forward to continuing our conversation on energy, innovation, and finance with you.